Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Reporting is Eligible is proudly supported by Appleton Coffee Company, a small local roaster in Appleton, Wisconsin. They provide coffee around the world. The Packerland Breakfast Blend will be going on sale to be $12 a bag. While you're there, how about you pick up a Reporting is Eligible t-shirt or sweatshirt and make sure you use RAE at checkout to save yourself some money. Again, that's RAE at checkout. She's a black belt in karate Working for the city She has to discipline her body Cause she knows that Hey everybody, welcome to Season 3, Episode 2 of Reporting as Eligible. Um, this is a little bit of a placeholder episode because uh, it's the, the dreaded week between the end of summer camp slash daycare and school starting. And so we're sort of forced to take a vacation during this week, um, which is, and I mean, I just moved. The last thing I want to do is pack things into other things and go somewhere else. But, you know, such is life. So um, taking a little bit of a break, we'll be back with the full show next week. Hopefully everybody will make it. Paul and JR will. I think Matt will be here too. Uh, and we'll have some changes on the horizon in terms of where you can find the podcast. If you just get it in your podcast feed, you don't have to change anything, but a little bit wider distribution might be coming up soon. So that's always fun. Um, but I did still want to have a, a at least a quick episode here um, because we're actually having games. It's the preseason. And I, I feel like the Packers really got the dregs of the preseason, at least to start here. They have the Bills coming up. That'll be that'll be better. They're a fun team. Um, and there's a lot to talk about when the Packers face them because Jordan Love gets compared to Josh Allen a lot, mostly because the only way he'll be good is if he does whatever Josh Allen did, which has basically happened once ever, eh, maybe twice. Um, we'll get to that later. But they had the Jets this week after getting Houston last week, which is, uh, I mean... Uh, first of all, the Jets finished dead last in DVOA last year. Uh, they had a negative 30.5%. They were way worse than anybody else. Um, they finished second last in offense. Only the the uh, Washington football team was worse, and uh, they earned that. Um, but their defense was only 21st, so not atrocious. And that's actually a good place to start with them because they actually have a little bit of talent on defense. And the main problem with the Jets, well, talent's the main problem with the Jets, but... Um, the second main problem with the Jets is Adam Gase, and he's gone. So um, you can, when you fire your coach, you don't necessarily get a better coach out of the deal. Um, but uh, Adam Gase was, I think, the prototypical guy who gets a chance because he's known by people. He's a safe white guy um, with an undeserved reputation who kept getting opportunities. He made his bones making Peyton Manning good. And, like, Oh, okay. Uh, well done. No, way to go. I mean, that's <laughs> he. He was the offensive coordinator when when Peyton was on the Broncos, and you know Peyton got it done with those Broncos teams. But Peyton doesn't need an offensive coordinator, and you should be skeptical of all Peyton offensive coordinators because Peyton's the offensive coordinator, and that team was you know needed a competent offense with a really good defense behind it, which you know that's what John Fox brought to the table, and they were good. Um, 
But like Adam Gase didn't do anything. He, he his reputation is totally unearned. He has been with just a, 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 a he's been with the Lions. I, you don't do you want that on your resume? No. Michigan State again, not great. Uh, the Bears, not a good offensive powerhouse. The Dolphins during one of their worst offensive tenures, and then the Jets. Like uh, you look at that resume, and honestly, anybody who hired Adam Gase after what the Bears probably shouldn't work in the league anymore. He's gone, um, which at least they realized too late, but their mistake. Um, and in his place, we have, I'm going to say his name wrong because I don't listen to games with the stuff on, but Robert S- Robert Sala, I'm going to go with Sala. Sala, I don't know. Um, but Robert Sala is a, uh, a defensive coach. He has a lot of success in the league, and that's really what you want <laughs> when you're hiring a coach. So um, he was the defensive coordinator most recently under the 49ers. Um, with with Kyle Shanahan, and it was when the 49ers had excellent defenses, and he built them into an excellent defense, so good that they did end up making a Super Bowl, and you know we're we're really in the thing too. So um, he has put together at least at least decent defenses everywhere he's gone. Um, when he has had bad defenses, there's usually been a good reason for it. Uh, you know, just lack of spending, salary cap problems, or generally incompetent front offices, and they've generally outperformed what you would expect. Again, what you're looking for. I'm not a big uh, fan of uh, my head coach being a defensive coordinator. Generally speaking, um, I, I would rather have the the offensive wonderkind if possible. But sometimes it's called for, and I think the Jets might be one of those times. And also. He might Robert Sala like I like I like the defensive coordinator who worked with Kyle Shanahan. I think that is a sign. You know, coaches also have to work in tandem. The defensive guys usually have more of a reputation for being more military rah rah types, and your offensive guys have a reputation for being you know a little nerdier um, in the playbook all the time kind of thing. That's unfair. Like if you read Collision Lacrossers, you know Rex Ryan's a big tape guy who's big into strategy and stuff like that. And a lot of defensive coaches are. It's just kind of a different animal because you're reacting rather than planning. And I think we lean towards offensive guys because we like planning, but planning's not always good. Um, and defenses, they plan. It's just a different kind of planning. So um, he's had success, and I think that he has certainly earned the right to take over a team. And Honestly, if the Jets take kind of a colossal leap defensively, it won't be that big of a surprise. They've got a few horses there, and they weren't atrocious last year um, in a situation where they probably should have been. So um, I think they may be a little better than everybody expects on the defensive side of the ball, quicker than people expect them to be. So there's that. That offense, though, whew, that is a, that's something. So um, they did draft, oh God, Zach Wilson's the most boring quarterback in that class. Um so they have Zach Wilson, who's a good prospect, and put up good numbers in a decent school. But uh, I am looking forward to seeing him, at least, because I do not know much about him. Uh, I don't know why. I just didn't look... Like, I looked at all the other guys a lot more than Zach Wilson um, in the offseason. A, a, he does fine in Cubopson, CPS. His stats were all really good. He projects to be a good NFL quarterback. I just kind of found him a little bit on the dull side. Maybe it's because he ended up on the Jets, too. Um, it's just... The Jets' offense is usually not fun to study or talk about, not since, like, Chad Pennington. I don't know. Um, but he, he is a young, exciting quarterback. He's a very good prospect. If he turns into a star, it won't be that surprising. And uh, he should be fun to see. So there's that, too. So um, the Packers probably get a little bit of a challenge on defense. It's preseason. You know, all caveats apply, vanilla steams, all that jazz. But uh, this should be at least a little bit um, interesting in terms of, 
uh, testing the guys on offense a little bit more. So there's all that. The other thing I, I wanted to touch on briefly, well, while we're still in the preseason, is we talk a lot about um, advanced stats on this podcast, and we, we kind of run through them, and I assume everybody kind of has a basic understanding of them. But, you know, I got time, so um, just really, really quick. You know, the, ones, the one we, I think, rely on the most is DVOA, which I still think is kind of the best one, even though it's very old and sort of simple. And uh, I'll get to why in a second, but so DVOA is just defensive adjusted value over average. Football has a problem with their acronyms not sounding very good. Baseball doesn't get a lot right, but they get that right. Um, war, you know, war is a good stat name. It's war. Um, DeVoa, not as good. Um, we had a big argument about A-N-Y-A the other day in the Slack, and um, everybody pronounces it N-E-A except me. I still like Anya. I'm going to keep doing it. I don't care. Um, anyway, DVOA is just a success metric, and um, it, it is an expl- explanatory metric. So in advanced stats, usually you get some that are predictive. You get some that tell you what happened. A lot of old school stats tell you what happened more than anything else. And I would say that DVOA has some predictive power, but it's more of a what happened stat. Um, it, it's you know, good players will play good in the future, so it's predictive in that sense. But I kind of like that better, mostly because, A, I think it's very accurate in telling you this. Like, the defensive adjusted part, I think, gets to a lot of the heart of the problem of football stats because the defense you're facing matters a lot. And for defenses, the quarterback you're facing matters a lot. And if you don't adjust for those things, you're going to be a little bit out of whack. Um, But there's so much noise in football stats generally. Like, the season is so small. um, uh, Turnovers and unpredictable things are such huge factors that doing any kind of predictive stat, I mean, you can do it, and it is not completely invaluable, but I would rather have a detailed account of what actually took place, and I think that that's often going to be more useful. Honestly, even if you have a good predictive stat in football, um, by the time like regression to the mean hits enough for you to see the would-be results of it, often the team has changed so much that it's lost all of its meaning anyway. Uh, like it, it, sometimes it, think about baseball. Like guys, people go through hundred game slumps. That's like five football seasons. I, that math might be wrong. I did it very quickly. Um, but you know that's what you're dealing with on sample size here, and that matters a good amount. So DVOA is sometimes looked down upon by some of the other nerds, um, uh, the EPA based people. Um, PFF looks down on kind of everything because they're kind of jerks. Um, but it's a good one, and, and it's a good one because it, it you can tell um, on the component parts of DVOA kind of why people are good and why they're bad. Um, it makes a lot of intuitive sense, and it checks out against reality. I think that that's the main thing. When a guy is good in DVOA and not perceived as good in reality, usually they'll kind of jump back to, um, they'll jump up and end up being good when they get more opportunities. It happens kind of a lot. And uh, what, what we mean by success rate is this. Um, so the formula is proprietary. I can't tell you what that is, but it definitely um, takes into account two things. A metric for success, meaning on this play, did you get closer or further away from converting a first down? And um, sort of big play. So on this play, did you get substantially closer to scoring? Did you make a, a good use of this one play? Or did you not? Did you lose yards? So it has a boom and bust component and a did you just get better or not component um, weighted and combined. So like, uh, you know, I, may, I have QBOPs and ROPs that I just do with a very simple formula that I can crank out of pro football reference. 
And uh, DVOA, I think, in many ways, is just a very much more sophisticated version of that, and they do track each other pretty well. Um, so that makes a lot of sense. It's based on th things and success metrics that make a lot of sense, and it explains things quite well. Um, the big one that people use a lot now is some version of EPA. And EPA is good, but it is a little bit problematic for a few reasons. So um, I, I want to say that it's not useful because it definitely is. And if you want to play around with EPA, um, Ben Baldwin has set up RBSDM for you. You can go to it right now and you can see a ton of stat EPA-based stats. And again, they make a lot of intuitive sense. Uh, Ben's favorite stat is, see, this is annoying. It's, it's again, it's a graph. It's a combination of EPA per play and co completion percentage above expected CPOE. We'll get to that in a second. And if you do that, Aaron Rodgers from last season is far and away better than everybody else. And you can see it very, very clearly. And Ryan Tannehill's where he should be and Josh Allen's where he should be. Deshaun Watson's where he should be. I'm not in prison, but uh, on the chart. Um, so it all, again, it makes sense, but it's a little clunky. And EPA is fundamentally a team stat. The only reason this works with quarterbacks as well as it does is because quarterbacks are responsible for so much in football. And that's good because it lets you do this kind of kludgy analysis where you're assigning a lot of team value to them. And, you know, you can, the CPOA part helps a lot here. Although I would question whether maybe you shouldn't just use CPOA because if you look at Ben's horizontal axes, they, they make almost as much sense as when you put EPA in there. But aside from all that, um, this gets to a bigger problem of these stats generally and of football stats generally. So, um, a lot of the a lot of these stats sort of derive from baseball. If you if you go over to PFF, they've been trying to make a football war for quite some time. They always claim they have it. I think they may even have it published on their site, but they don't make a big deal out of it. Um, baseball's lucky, and it's lucky in a lot of ways. It's lucky in that if somebody tries to steal second base, it takes about as long to run from first to second as it does for a catcher to throw down to second. And if if that equilibrium was off too much from what it is, steals would never happen. Either they'd be too risky or the store, they, or they have to outlaw them because they'd happen every time. And so it just so happens that the baseball mathematics works out on that in its favor. And it also, um, from a value perspective, they get lucky there too because every baseball player essentially has the capacity to be as valuable as any other player. Um, it's not that positional value doesn't exist. Like shortstops are rarer and power hitting shortstops are more valuable than power hitting first baseman. But generally speaking, if a first baseman, a big clunky guy who can't play defense, hits, you know, 55 home runs, he might win the MVP. And if a light hitting shortstop manages to play awesome defense and hit 40 doubles, he might be the MVP. And if a starting pitcher um, dominates the league, he might be the MVP. Um, so it's it's a... A sport where the talent and the value kind of can come from anywhere. Football is so much harder just because a quarterback is so much more important and everybody else is left for scraps. And uh, uh, people try to make war um, in football, but there are so many problems with it. And that's the first big one that you got to take quarterback basically out of it to start because they're worth like half the wins in the league. Um, and that also is not set in stone, which makes it even harder. Uh, a guy like Aaron Rodgers, who's so dominant, is going to be worth quite a bit more than just an average quarterback. And um, a below-average quarterback is actually going to draw a huge amount of wins away if they're below replacement level. 
So that's problem one. Problem two, baseball has discrete events. You know, a pitch happens. It's either a ball or a strike. If it's hit and play, it's there's like several outcomes, but not a ton. We know kind of what their value is. And that's it. But football, the plays are all over the place. They can turn into turnovers and you have huge swings. Um, they're very, in terms of the weight that they get, they're very down dependent. And the whole sport is so interactive with a lot of the positions depending on how good the quarterback is in the first place. And that goes for the defense and who they face. Um, it is a mess. There's so much noise if you're trying to put together a war that I don't think I'll ever trust any football war that comes out. Um, it will have to be extremely sophisticated based on things like player tracking. And it if it gets that sophisticated, it'll essentially just be quantified scouting. Nothing wrong with that. It's not a bad idea. A lot of next-gen stats are essentially that. But it's not really war. It's a different thing. Um, so the other thing that makes football very difficult is, especially on defense, um, the the interaction means that everything is kind of equally important um, but some things in a vacuum are more important than others. Now, here's what I mean. If, you ever, if you've been following Pro Football Focus's war development, um, they have come to the conclusion based on their studies, which I, I, I want to sound like I'm making fun of them here. They put a lot of work into this, and there's probably some truth to it. Um, but they've concluded that the secondary is the most valuable part of the defense, and cornerbacks in particular. And that makes some intuitive sense. You need a lot of cornerbacks in modern defense. And if your third cornerback is much worse than your first two cornerbacks, they'll get picked on all the time. And so it actually makes all of your other cornerbacks worse, too. You need good play and you need depth at the secondary positions to actually make this work. And um, we used to think that edge was most important, the pass rush. But you only need two of those guys and you need at least three corners plus some depth. So it makes sense that you, you, know, you need more of the guys who are shifty and good tacklers and have quick twitch and all that jazz. Um, so it make, that all makes intuitive sense, but it's not that simple because these two things interact so closely that if a pass rush isn't getting home in X amount of time, it doesn't matter how good the secondary is. They're going to give up passes because the quarterback will be able to take his time and you can only cover for so long. And if that secondary is not shutting anybody down for any length of time, the quarterback will get the ball out before the pass rush ever gets home every time and they'll be neutralized. So... Um, those two things work in tandem so closely that I'm not sure you can call one specifically better than the other. Um, that's a problem, and I think um, it's a problem that shows up when a team has a really good pass rush and not a really good secondary. I think that systems like that start to give credit to the secondary that it doesn't deserve um, and take away from the pass rush and, and vice versa in some other situations. Now, the one thing they all agree on is that inside linebacker, off-ball linebacker, isn't valuable. It's essentially the running back of the defense. And one thing about sabermetric orthodoxy in football is the Packers tend to be the team that proves it wrong. Like, you know, we're always running backs don't matter, which is an oversimplification because the running game matters a lot. But the Packers have been run over in some pretty high profile situations in their past. I remember Ahmad Bradshaw of the Giants basically winning a game single handedly against them. Um, not a running back, but Colin Kaepernick obviously destroyed them running quarterbacks. Um, destroyed them when they were set up to stop the pass but not the run they got beaten by the run and that you know it, it it seems like sort of hollow to say running is less efficient than passing when you're a Packer fan because you've seen the Packers get destroyed on the ground quite a few times 
And you just saw inside linebacker play matter quite a bit against Green Bay. Devin White, um, the most impactful play by EPA in the NFC Championship game last year, was actually Devin White crushing Aaron Jones and causing a fumble. Um, that actually swung the game more than anything else. Devin White had a ton of important plays in that game as an off-ball linebacker. And it's not like um, Levante David it was you know, a slouch either. Um, the Packers seem to run into good inside linebackers with some regularity, and they do seem to matter fairly, fairly often. And the Packers almost never have a good one. I can't remember a good one ever existing. And it seems to burn them with some regularity. So they can tell me all day that that position doesn't matter, but uh, I, I'm pretty sure it does. And I, I think that PFF, actually, if they took a, a longer look at their own stats, uh, they'd come to the conclusion why pretty quickly, because outside of quarterback, the other thing that they found was that the most valuable player in the league at least two years ago was George Kittle. And the reason, uh, so George Kittle is obviously a very good tight end. He's a good blocker. He's an excellent receiver. You know, he, he is the whole package. If you run the Shanahan offense, he's what you want. Um, but it's worth noting, you know, in ter- against receivers, he's not quite as good. You know, he is, he's a good receiver for a tight end, but he's not Julio Jones. He's not, you know, one of the best receivers in the league. Um, what he is, though, is versatile. And he is able to exploit inside linebackers because inside linebackers frequently end up having to cover tight ends, and none of them can cover George Kittle. Um, if you put a corner or a safety on George Kittle, He's also an excellent run blocker, and in the Shanahan offense, that matters. You will get absolutely crushed if you go light against them because they go heavy and pass out of heavy, just like the Packers do. So PFF's own statistics basically said, well, inside linebacker doesn't matter unless you have this guy, and then it matters a whole lot, enough that this guy is the most valuable player in the league that's not a quarterback. Um, So I think the way to look at those positions, inside linebacker, if you get an elite one, it's absolutely worth it. It's hard to do that, though. And with the mediocre ones, there's not that big of a difference between them. I think that that's kind of the thing. There. But when you see like PFF guys getting snarky about a team drafting an inside linebacker, paying an inside linebacker too much money, if it's an elite guy, I suspect they're wrong. I suspect that that front office knows more than they do and that keeping that guy is probably worth it. And um, the other reason we know this is because, you know, the Bears to the south, we, we make fun of them a lot, but Brian Erlacher was an off-ball linebacker, and their defense was very different. Lovey's defense is a little unique, but, you know, he was an absolute monster in taking away the middle of the field. Lovey's Tampa defenses were very similar in that way. You can make a defense where off-ball linebacker matters quite a bit, and it happens quite a bit to the south of us. So, um, it's not so simple, and I I don't care how those guys talk online, and they 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 also make fun of anybody who complains about their tone, but you know if you're Josh Hermsmeyer or Ben Baldwin or um, any of those guys who are uber snarky about analytics online, well, I hate to tell you this, but part of creating new and slightly complex things that people aren't used to is presentation. Uh, it's somewhat ironic that Ben actually works pretty hard to make this pretty. Like, I'm on RB's DM right now, and you know the charts that come out of this look good. They're very well formatted. They're meant to communicate complex information in an easily digestible way. And, you know, you lose all of that when you make fun of everybody for not understanding what you understand. Baseball had this problem, too, um, with Fire Joe Morgan, which I love, which is hilarious, um, with a bunch of snarky guys. It just 
you know, when you call everybody stupid, they're not necessarily going to listen to you. So, yeah, tone matters. If, if, if you want to be right, tone doesn't matter. If you want people to actually listen to the fact that you're right, it matters quite a bit. And the way that you go about presenting all of this information matters immensely. So um, here's the other thing. I think they may have over uh, overvalued exactly how much value analytics brings to the table for a lot of teams, at least what we talk about and understand. And here's an example. Um, when we look at what we think of as a smart front office, it's usually things like fourth down efficiency and run pass balance. Like, are you are you running too much? Um, are you, we know if you're going for it on fourth down, not punting at midfield, you've looked at the analytics and you're following them, and that's great. Um, the thing, though, is a lot of the really creative and best teams routinely go against that. Um, for instance, the Ravens and the 49ers, they run a lot. Um, they, and their entire offense is, well, especially the 49ers, based around uh, putting a heavy team out there, getting the defense to come with heavy defenders, and then passing with the heavy personnel against them. But they do run a lot. Um, when they do, when, when teams go light, they try and punish them by running and are often very successful in doing so. Like the 49er jet sweeps and receiver running plays are everybody as good as the Raheem Mostert plays. And, um, you know, it's hard to argue against them being really valuable. Uh, I, I feel like the, the sabermetric um, sort of doctrine on running the ball is, is kind of tied up with play action. And it, play action is super valuable. And our research all shows that if you run play action, it's effective whether you establish the run or not. And a lot of the anti-running stuff is bound up in that. That uh, you run, t you know, say you say you have to run to set a play action. Well, you don't. You can just do play action. By the way, the Bills were very good at this last year. They ran the least and, and were very effective in play action and worked great. Um, so that's true. But I don't think that that's the full picture because the, the 49ers don't run to set up play action. The 49ers run to make you put another linebacker on the field. And if once you do that, they will pass against you and absolutely destroy you. But if you have that extra safety or corner on the field, they'll run against you and destroy you too, unless you are a very, very big athletic de defense yourself. So that's a different animal. And the Packers run a very similar offense to the 49ers. They also run the ball kind of a bit more than most sabermetric people would like. But Hey, Aaron was one in DVOA last year. Their passing game was the most efficient passing game in the league, and you can say that they're gonna that you should pass more. And even if he's, even if his efficiency dips a little bit when doing so, then that's all right. It's that's fine if you get more passes with slightly less efficiency. It's better in the grand scheme of things. Well, uh, that's probably a bit of a delicate balance to hoe to. And if the other team stops putting. Um, an extra linebacker on the field because you're not running on them. Uh, maybe that passing game gets quite a bit worse. Maybe a lot of the playbook doesn't work as well. A lot of the Packer offenses is essentially trick plays, springing Robert Tanya in open, getting guys on disguised jet sweep. There's a lot of deception. And to have deception, you need to sell deception. It's not just play action. It's it's more than that. So um, it's not. I think the running game matters more than it's given credit for. And... Um, and uh, yeah, running backs might not matter in the grand scheme of things that much, but um, there are some skills that running backs bring to the table that are useful too. We talk about Kyle Juszczyk a lot, the 49ers fullback. He's often one of the most efficient pass catchers in the league, um, and that's why they value him so much. 
if you can get a running back to do that, that is worth paying for. And it's hard to find. There's <laughs> there's not a lot of guys like Kyle Juszczyk out there to actually grab. So um, PFF does their thing. And we should talk about them really quick because they're the other, I would say, a big chunk of sabermetrics. Um, I actually do prefer Sports Info Solutions technique a little bit, or technique, stats a little bit more than PFFs. And they're, the I'd say, the two big competitors with each other. Both of them try and quantify individual contributions to scoring points in various ways. PFF uses their grades. Um, they also have an analytics arm that's a bit of a different animal, does some good work, does some questionable work. Um, but, you know, what you usually see is PFF grades. That's what makes it out there. And that's just scouting with a number. And it's fine. Uh, it can be useful sometimes, especially for things that are hard to grade, like offensive line. Um, but, you know, it, it's, a, it's a subjective judgment, ultimately. And uh, Sports Info Solutions, also a subjective judgment. But they break down every play. And they, they start with an EPA base, and they try to assign the value of the play out um, to everybody who is involved based on subjective scouting. And... You know, these, there's going to be problems with that too, but it, theirs does seem to make quite a bit of sense, and it's it's uh, I would say an advancement over the typical um, scouts scouting that happens at PFF. So um, they all bring something to the table, but uh, to, by the way, SIS is his total points or points and. Um, if, if you ever want to look at that, you can go to the SIS data hub. Most of it's free. They have a pro section too that costs money. I have not ponied up for that yet, but uh, they do good work. And I do pony up for PFF because there's some useful stuff in there. Um, it's just that, uh, you know, skepticism is warranted on a lot of this and everyone I've just talked about, um, even, uh, even the football outsiders guys, sometimes even SIS guys, sometimes definitely PFF guys are often a little overconfident in all of this. So, um, uh, a lot of the, I would say, better ones, like um, uh, Doug Farrar, like especially, he's gotten more into the scouting side of things. I think he's gotten a little more humble about the advanced stats, and I think that's a good place to be. Um, this last anecdote, for you know, if you've read Moneyball, which is <laughs> now very old, um, Billy Bean and uh, the front office for the A's completely discounts defense in that book. And um, we have since learned to quantify defense much better, and um, he was wrong. And, you know, th th that book speaks very confidently about dismissing defense. And it, it, Moneyball is wrong about a lot, but it, that's one of the big ones. One of the other big ones that we were wrong about for a long time was, was catcher value. And it, 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 framing, framing runs are now kind of old, but like uh, many, many years ago, Mike Fast and uh, Harry Pavlides, John Judge, and a few other people uh, all quantified exactly how much value catchers add by stealing strikes and um, causing extra balls to happen by where they have their glove. And it's a huge value. It was at the time. It's actually been shrinking because now all catchers can do it at least somewhat competently. But at the time, it was like a 10-win difference between the worst and best catchers. But before they did that, um, nobody knew that about catchers. And there were a lot of catchers that were there for bat-only reasons that were giving away tons of value um, on the other side. And everybody thought that the offense catchers were fine and that they weren't giving away that much value and everybody was pretty confident about it. The point is, um, analytics people are wrong all the time. And the best ones are the ones who understand where they might be wrong. And I try and always keep an eye out for, uh, you know what, teams are paying and drafting running backs high. And yes, there are a lot of old boys and a, a lot of bad process in NFL front offices, but not universally and they're all getting better. If this keeps happening, maybe they do know something we don't. Um, and 
So it's good to be open-minded about that stuff. And, you know, I've seen the Packers get destroyed by enough inside linebackers to to be very, very, very skeptical about such things. So um, I will I will now um, t- retire for the week. Um, I'm going to go do my vacation and get that over with. Um, but, you know, we're, we're close to real football. We'll have more coming up pretty soon. Also, uh, we will have a few more giveaways for the Patreon um, coming up soon as well, mostly because since I moved, I managed to find all my bobbleheads, and I have a lot of doubles. So <laughs> um, I'm definitely going to be raffling those off to Patreon members sometime soon. Um, again, um, I also hope you enjoyed the 200th episode and 201st episode of MKA Tailgate. Um, I, I do that podcast every week as well with James and Ryan, um, and we'll have um, Metub and I hate saying it. We'll have Matt and JR back uh, for this soon as well. We'll go full bore as soon as the season starts. Um, it should be a good season at Acme Packing Company. We've gotten um, some more and better fun statistical resources since Justice Mosqueda came aboard, and um, we should be able to crank out a lot of insightful stuff this year. So um, do keep an eye out for our stuff over there, and I will talk to you guys again later on reporting as eligible.